Today's episode of The Shameless Picture Show is brought to you by Severin Films. Severin Films specializes in Blu-rays and Blu-ray collections of some of the best forgotten cinema. Horror, foreign, exploitation, and shot-on-video movies with great collectible packaging and each disc jammed with extra features, commentaries, and behind-the-scenes features, including interviews with the cast and crews, and so much more. Keep physical media alive by visiting www.severinfilms.com. That's www.severinfilms.com, and let them know your friend Michael at the Shameless Picture Show sent you. Howdy, folks. My name is Owen Brand. And I'm Katie Cadaver. And we are co-hosts of the VHS Vault podcast, where old is new and cringe is king. Uh, we are a podcast dedicated to bringing you old and obscure movies from deep in the vault. That's right. You can listen to us on Spotify, Amazon Music, and on Planet Rage Radio Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central on the Live 365 app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And email us at VHSVaultPodcast at gmail.com. The Shameless Picture Show is part of the Cinepunks Network. If you like the Shameless Picture Show and you want to hear other great shows like it, make sure you check out the Cinepunks Network. You can find them at www.cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E. P-U-N-X. There's other great shows such as Cinepunks. There's The Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, Fat Girl Hacks, Loud Fast Philly, Tomb of Ideas, and Twitch of the Death Nerve, and so much more. If you like punk rock and you like movies, make sure to go to www.cinepunks.com. And let's not forget the sponsors for the Cinepunks Network. We have the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. They are the premier screen printer of the Lehigh Valley with service to the whole country, professional and personable in a way that only a DIY business can be. They also have ridiculously low prices for whatever your screen printing needs may be. You can visit them online at xlvacx.com. That's xlvacx.com. Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. We also have the Essex Coffee Roasters. They're, all their coffee is roasted to order. They have high-quality beans, bunch of apparel, and tea available. They are bringing high-quality coffee to the masses without the pretentiousness. Use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. You can visit them at www.essexcoffeeroasters.com. That's E-S-S-E-X, coffeeroasters.com. Once again, use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. Big shout out to the band Crossed Keys uh, for lending us that awesome fucking music during our little ad. That song is called Who We Never Were. You can buy that single currently off of Bandcamp. The band is called Crossed Keys. It will be on their full-length album, Believes in You. Uh, That song was lent to me by Crossed Keys, specifically, uh, I don't know if he goes by Joey Angel or goes by Joshua Alvarez, but I met him as Joshua Alvarez. He's the co-host of Cinepunks, our fucking network. And I told him, I love this song, I want to use it, so that way people don't have to listen to me talk. And he said, fuck yeah. So please, if you like the song, uh, the song is called Who We Never Were. You can get that on Bandcamp currently. Uh, off of their album Believes in You, you can get the 10 song. The 10 song LP is out May 5th, Friday, May 5th. 
uh, you can actually order it on vinyl right now. So go show them some love. This episode is also brought to you by Paramount Pictures. Paramount Pictures is a legendary producer and global distributor of filmed entertainment since 1912. Paramount Pictures Library consists of more than 1,000 film titles with rights to an additional 2,500, featuring films by Hollywood's most respected filmmakers, including Martin Scorsese, J.J. Abrams, and Michael Bay, among others. Paramount Pictures Library consists of more than 1,000 films, including such classics as Star Trek, Godfather, and Indiana Jones franchises. Academy Award winners Braveheart, Forrest Gump, and Titanic, and current favorites such as The Mission Impossible and Transformers franchises. Paramount Pictures distributes its titles on DVD and Blu-ray through Paramount Home Entertainment. We are happy to have them. We fucking love Paramount Pictures. discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hey guys, it's Michael here. So I wanted to just jump on before we start this great episode with Blue Vel- on Blue Velvet, where I have Amber Rose McNeil and Josephine Maria Janacek Leschinski. Uh, and as I said, we're talking about Dave Lynch's Blue Velvet. It's a great episode. You're going to love it. I love it. Um, but I wanted to jump in and first say that uh, one, I wanted to apologize if there's any weird audio issues in this episode unfortunately we do the best we can but we did run into a couple little snafus with audio so if conversations kind of just drop out throughout this conversation i apologize once or twice uh amber did have to jump out of the conversation just because of wi-fi issues because we do this show entirely online so sometimes that happens um but i'm thinking it's not going to be too noticeable it's not gonna be too bad i just wanted to mention in case we are talking about something that just kind of abruptly ends and i couldn't quite make the edit work so you didn't think we're just idiots and forgot what we're talking about because that's not the case um but i am very proud of this episode um and i think everyone involved has a lot of really cool things to say And while we do talk about this in the episode itself, I do want to give another shout out to Amber Rose McNeil's upcoming Milwaukee Illuminate Film Festival. Um, That this film festival is an inclusive event for all people from underrepresented and historically marginalized communities. This is the first year that Amber Rose will be running this film festival, and I think it's really great. Uh, Josephine will be a judge on this. This is something that's new that's come out since this episode was recorded, and I will actually be the master of ceremonies at this event. This is really cool and something you should all be checking out. Amber Rose has been doing a lot of great things with this film festival, and you won't want to miss that. So if you are in the Milwaukee area, keep your eye open for the Milwaukee Illuminate Film Festival. Okay, one last thing I wanted to mention before we head out, before we get to the conversation about Blue Velvet with Josephine and Amber Rose, is I do want to mention that at the time of this um, recording, that the uh, call for deadlines, or sorry, the call for entries is officially closed. Um, so if you want to submit your, your film to the Milwaukee Illuminate Film Festival, I do have some good news for you. I do have an extended deadline code that I am going to give to all of you. So if you'd like to still submit to the Milwaukee Illuminate Film Festival, you can do so 
by using the deadline code M K E M I F F L A T E X 24. So that's M K E E, sorry, M K E MIF late X 24. M K E M I F F L A T E X 24. And I will put that down in the uh, description for everyone listening. So that comes directly from Amber Rose. That is the extended deadline code. So you can still submit your film to the Milwaukee Illuminate Film Festival. Once again, M K E M I F F L A T E X 24. If you use that at checkout on Film Freeway, that will get you an extended deadline. It is also worth mentioning that as of the time that I'm recording this, um, we uh, there is a venue for the Milwaukee Illuminate Film Festival. It is at the Fitzgerald. So they are partnered with the Paps Theater Group, and this will be at the Fitzgerald. And this will be Saturday, December 16th. And there will be an after party at This Is It. So you're going to definitely want to check this out. Also, please listen to the end of until the end of the podcast. I know normally we just have our outro or whatever, but I have put a new segment on this episode um, that you're not going to want to miss. Uh, recently, I have partnered with Severin Films, and I have a new segment called It Came From Severin. I know it's a kind of a dumb title, but um, I will be reviewing from the Christopher Lee Euro Cult Collection. I will be talking about Crypt of the Vampire, directed by Thomas Miller and Robert Spafford. Uh, so you're not going to want to miss that. So please listen to the end of the episode so you can hear me talk about Crypt of the Vampire. Welcome to another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers, and today I am joined by two very special guests. First off, you all should know her by now, as she's quickly becoming one of the most used co-hosts on this show. Uh, and I know you all love her as much as I do. That's right. Today, I have my good friend, Josephine Maria Yanisa Leschinski. Nailed it. Yes. Um, she, we got her back on the show, and not only... For those of you who might be new to the show, was she my Revenge Fest co-creator? But she's also one of my favorite voices in film culture today. Um, however, she's not just an authority on film. She's also authority on many other di- different aspects of life, culture, and art. Since the last time we had her on our show, Josephine has now also contributed an essay to a new book on Susan Seidelman called Refocus, the Films of Susan Seidelman, which was edited by my friend and former film producer, Susan Kearns. While this book is currently available as a nice, big, hardcover textbook, I've been told from a little birdie that a softcover edition will be coming soon. And on top of that, because I forgot to write it in, she will also be on a panel that I'm moderating for the Twisted Dreams Film Festival about horror films and film criticism called Why So But we're not alone. Um, If any of you have been following the Milwaukee Short Film Festival, like I know you all have, I'm sure you saw the amazing panel I did called Ask a Film Festival Programmer. Well, I have one of those wonderful film festival programmers here today with me. Amber Rose McNeil is an Australian film director, intimacy coordinator, and programmer based in Wisconsin. As a queer, Jewish, bi-gender, neurodivergent artist, his work centers around challenging social attitudes to toward normative sexuality and traditional gender roles, as well as critiquing the role of violence in film and media, which feels very appropriate for the topic later on. 
Amber cut his teeth programming for the Milwaukee Underground Film Festival in 2023 before developing the Milwaukee Illuminate Film Festival, which aims to specifically illuminate and elevate underrepresented voices in film and video. Welcome to the show, both of you. Yay, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Uh, well, we will just do the best we can. We're having some tech issues. Josephine was having a fight club outside uh, their window. A little bit of everything is going on today, but um, I'm happy to have you both here. Like yeah. this is kind of this is kind of like uh, a dream podcast of having two really interesting, fun guests uh, talking about a really weird movie, which seems like the best way to go about doing this. And right now, Josephine, your track record for weird movies on this show with me is pretty great. And this is your second David Lynch. Oh my god, it is, and. This uh, this is David Lynch's Star Wars film. David Lynch gave up Star Wars to do Dune. And then if he says, if he had done Star Wars, he would have not made this film. So this is his Star Wars film. So Dune and then this was like a natural successor. I, I think that yeah. is the right choice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited about this film because I first saw it for the first time when I was like between the ages of four and six all right uh, my memory is a little bit uh you know uh here and there because i was so young but uh strangely i remember quite a lot about the film and uh i feel like it did uh have some formative effects on me in a, in a myriad of ways oh. from from personality to human interaction <laughs> to, all right to filmmaking no that's a great well then heck and instead of just you know talking about whatever for a little while i say we just jump right into it so what i'm gonna do is i'll introduce i'm gonna i wrote a little intro about the movie and then we'll just jump right into it sounds good so on today's episode of the Shameless Picture Show, we're discussing, uh, we're actually crossing, sort of, sort of crossing a movie off my shame list. And let me explain. The film we're discussing today is one that I saw in chunks, really large chunks throughout high school, because IFC used to play it all the time. Back when IFC was cool and actually showed interesting movies and didn't have commercials. Is that a cable uh, channel? Sorry, I don't yes, know what IFC is. Yes, it okay, was. It was an independent you. film channel. Got it. Um, okay. They and so I had seen good portions of this movie. Like I've seen the intro. I saw you know a lot of stuff between uh, Isabel Rossellini and Dennis Hopper. Um, I pretty much saw everything up until the Paps Blue Ribbon scene, but I never saw the rest of it until today. Um, so today we're discussing David Lynch's haunting film Blue Velvet. Jeffrey Beaumont is home from college and after visiting his father in the hospital, stumbles upon a severed human ear lying in the field near his house. Where did it come from? Jeffrey wants to know. After taking it to the local authorities, his curiosity takes over. Jeffrey then meets the lead detective's daughter, Sandy, who gives him a single clue that leads him down a terrifying path that exposes the dark underbelly of the quiet town he lives in, filled with deranged drug dealers, mysterious lounge singers, and David Lynch's brand of Americana surrealism. Blue Velvet was a gamble for David Lynch as he was coming off Dune, which was considered by critics uh, to be a, to be considered by critics and the box office to be a flop. I don't necessarily agree, but that's what people thought. However, after the Elephant Man, Lynch still had a name in Hollywood and made a deal with the De Laurentiis Group to have creative control on his next film in exchange for a smaller salary and a smaller budget. However, 
Being able to make Blue Velvet exactly as he wanted was important to Lynch, and the gamble paid off. The film had a series of successful film festival screenings, and while the critics were mixed, the critics who loved the film really loved Blue Velvet and were very vocal. And Lynch even walked away with an Oscar nomination for Best Director, while Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini had been nominated for a Golden Globe and an Independent Spirit Award, respectively. Written and directed by David Lynch with cinematography by Frederick Elms, music by Angelo Badalamenti, and editing by Dwayne Dunham, who also made uh, Homeward Bound. Fun fact for you guys. Uh, the film stars Kyle MacLachlan, Isabel Rossellini, Dennis Hopper, Laura Dern, Dean Stockwell, and Jack Nance as Paul. From 1986, this is Blue Velvet. Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper, go to sleep, everything is all right. I close my eyes, then I drift away into the magic night. I keeps coming up is this woman singer the first thing i need is to get into her apartment i don't know if you're a detective or a pervert do you like the way i feel Jack Nance as Paul. Well, I originally added that just because he has that one line, and I'm Paul. Oh, yeah. That just cracked me up. That's good. (laughs) It's interesting, or it feels a little bit, I mean, this feels full circle. As I mentioned, I watched this at a very, very young age. (laughs) I probably shouldn't have. Uh, With my parents, I might add, not just like by myself, with my parents and my parents' friends uh, in a share house lounge room in uh, Surrey Hills, Sydney, Australia, which which used to be a very punk area, uh, if anyone is as old as the sea as I am. But um, yeah, I, I you mentioned the Independent Spirit Awards, and I've been a voting member um, on them for like six years now. That's so cool. Um, so awesome. yeah, feels like a feels like a, a couple of a couple of circles <laughs> circling. Closing All right. Here, yeah. So we got to hear Amber's uh, a little bit of his history with uh, Blue Velvet. Um, Before I ask Josephine's history with this film, do you have anything else you wanted to add to? You've seen it when you said four or five years old. When did you see it next, Amber? When did you see it when you could like understand more what was going on? Yeah. So the first time I watched it, I think I was maybe in kindergarten or preschool. I can't remember. I was very young. I remember the house we were in and I probably should have spoken to my mother to kind of like a uh, time date <laughs> better, but I was very young. I can't have been older than kindergarten. Um, 
and I didn't watch it again. I mean, it kind of terrified me in some aspects, but then like also like really excited me and was an awakening for a lot of stuff that I wouldn't come to realize for uh, many, many (laughs) years. But um, I didn't watch it again until I was in my thirties living in LA. And I was like, I feel like I should watch this film again and see how much my like little baby eyes and uh, (laughs) kindergarten brain uh, held on to, and uh, it was actually quite a lot. I, I have a disturbingly good memory <laughs> for certain things. Some things got a bit crisscrossed, but um, yeah, yeah, it wasn't until I was 30 something. How about you, Josephine? What are your earliest memories? Well, it's, it's a combination earliest memory and then strongest memory because that's kind of the way you change the question for amber yeah yeah um earliest i saw it in high school um so that would have been the 2010 or 2000s excuse me the aughts um i don't remember like i remember having seen it and just thinking it was like long and really boring frankly and i and we'll talk about this later but i think it has to do with where i was uh the second time i saw that film which was um in college the first time I went to a small college town um, with us. I mean, every small town has a seedy underbelly, which I think Lynch taps into. He was, you know, a, a military brat um, who moved around a lot of these smaller towns as a kid. And um, at least I think he was, if I'm remembering that correctly, I've not slept in a while. Um, but anyway, uh, but so I, when I went to college, I was from the city and I found myself suddenly kind of immersed in the bikers and the punks and the drug dealers in this small town. So it really connected to me a lot. I don't know. Um, I had this friend in college who always did Dennis Hopper's monologue when he's on the lithium or whatever, um, or Athlon Lightrate or whatever it is, uh, like he would just do that at parties and then he would like pick up a banjo and play Wonderwall to some random girl at the party. It was like really, it was, you know, like this film. It was very bizarre. Uh, so I saw this act out in real time. It was great. Um, and that was like so weird. I rewatched it last year um, and really enjoyed the movie. I think that I had to be out of, like, I really disliked this movie for a long time. Um, I think I had to be out of out of the experience of the film to really like understand it. I mean, visually it's beautiful. It's a super well-made movie. I just like hated every single character in it. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad film or that like mm-hmm. I automatically dislike films where I don't like characters, but I like disliked the characters. It wasn't like, Oh, this is such an interesting bad person. Or I, I relate to them. It was just like, I was like, I hate all these people. They're annoying. And it was probably because I knew every one of them when I was seeing it, you know, like personally. So uh, now I really like it. It's, you know, a very good representation of of what he's trying to discuss with not suburbia, but like small small town. It's not right like an off branch of a city. It is a, it is a, its own entity. Wow, now that's a, that's a hell of an like. I just like think it's like you knew all these people. You had an interesting friend group. I uh, yeah, I was I was like posting about this earlier. I haven't slept very much, and I did very little like of like the film research background I usually would for this. And so I was like, this is just going to be me telling stories about small town cocaine deals. Like that's what this podcast is going to be. So welcome. Well, I've often said that this show, if, if nothing is at times we, you know, we analyze the show, but half the time we just like, if there's a topic that can be found within the movie, Sure. And we can relate it to personal experiences. That for me is far more interesting, especially when I, you know, 
haven't done research. So, you know, whatever happens, happens. Tell us the cocaine stories. <laughs> I um, really have a couple. I don't mean to make it sound like I was like, you know, I was hanging out with people who dealt. I didn't, I never dealt, you know, it was, but it's, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how far we want to get into it right now, but like, I just remember being at these parties with these guys who like were total shitbags, right? Like in all the ways that Dennis Hopper is in this film. And like everyone knew it, but we all hung out because that's, it's a small town. That's who you have to hang out with. And I was a punk and I was playing punk music and like I, my best friend was a biker um, and he was like, you know, ostensibly a good dude, but like you just end up with the strangest uh, people. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michael, your- tell your drug story. My drug story. Do you have a drug story? What was, what story? Were you well, I don't really have a drug story. No, I was just going to elaborate on like, all the time, the partial times that I've watched this movie, but never. Oh, do it. that! <laughs> I was like, "Tell us about the drugs, Mike." <laughs> I, was you ready, I already, I already I told, I already told my drug story on the Cheech and Chong episode. Oh, <laughs> you only have one. Wait, hang on a second. Sorry, I just need to clarify. You only have one drug story. Well, not really. It's not really a drug story. It's more so um, on that episode. I, since my mom very occasionally listens to the show, that I went really in depth about. Um, smoking pot and she never smoking knew about what? it it's just smoking pot so she never <gasps> knew about it so uh so, so it, it was like a, it was like a I big like apology to my mom to my mother type situation <laughs> but then we got really deep into to mental health on that episode yeah. <laughs> it's really strange sorry tell us about your experience with this film so when i saw this i saw this film freshman year of high school uh like I said, in, in pieces, uh, I had never watched the entire thing, but funny enough, the stuff that I did see, I had a really strong memory of, um, I think at one point I was, um, for sure that the, that open, that scene near the beginning of the film with Kyle McLaughlin walking through the field. And then when he first discovers the ear left it in double mark on me because I was watching it one night and I fell asleep right when that scene was over but just the idea of a person walking through a field and finding an ear uh i was obsessed with and funny enough like i at the time this was the only anything i had ever seen of david lynch went out at the time so i didn't know that a whole running theme of his films was you know the seedy underbelly of idyllic town type of thing so like i saw the opening credits i saw that and then as an angsty teenager wrote a shit ton of short stories about the seedy underbelly of a idyllic town not even realizing that that was that's his shit um and uh and then um i saw it a couple i Pretty much, I feel like every time I saw it, I just saw a little bit more of it. I'd see another scene of it. Um, and the last scene I remember seeing before the, you know, I had seen it all the way through was Dennis Hopper's Paps Blue Ribbon scene and just the chaos of that. And then I, I never saw how the movie ended. Um, and I had, for whatever reason, had so many opportunities to see it. And I just never, like, it was almost like I was cherishing the memories I did have. Like, I don't know how this movie ends. And I don't know if I want to know how this movie ends because everything that I built up in my mind was, um, I guess, so lovely, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, but then there was things that were like upon this rewatch that I don't remember. Like, I don't I, I, I remember Dennis Hopper and his baby wants to fuck speech, but I didn't remember the really awkward sex scene on the ground. I mean, so it's either not a sex scene. But no, yeah. no, no, it's not a sex scene. I just didn't know what else it's to a rape call scene. it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's a rape fair scene. enough. She's um, being raped. Yeah. 
that uh, I either blocked that out or the paid channel that I was watching it on did not include it. <laughs> Which mm-hmm. either one could be uh, could be what happened. Um, because that's having finally seen that scene. Uh, just really fucked me this most recent time because I knew uh, that character was vile, but having seen so many parts of the movie, but missing that little connective tissue mm-hmm. just really changed a lot. Yeah, and I think that scene really sets up her and Kyle MacLachlan's relationship or what you know yeah. what was going on later so like that is a very important like it is actually I have I mean I've talked about before I have a real issue with showing evil characters who rape somebody as a shorthand for bad like mm-hmm. we can't we can't show everything they do but they rape somebody you know they're bad we're moving on totally ignoring how like what rape does to somebody right you know? yeah um and but this I really think thematically is very important to every other psychological relationship in the movie right it like sets mm-hmm. up and really establishes the tone establishes kyle mclaughlin who himself was sexually assaulted by her right before that scene happens so yeah and their yeah. scene when um she brings him out of uh of the closet and brandishes the knife at him uh is very similar to what frank's doing to her and it, you know yeah. until it plays out the way it does you, you don't know why or how it's happening it's it feels like a you know it's very much a trying to have my own power. Yeah. I like, I'm not necessarily a fan of, uh, cishet male directors who use, uh, rape and sexual assault Mm -hmm. in their films as like plot points for the men Mm -hmm. or as like titillating, like, Ooh, it's yucky, but like, we really have boners, right? Like this is all. We're going to see a naked body. Yeah. 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 Um, and so like, there are a lot of films that like really bother me in the way that they, uh, deal with things like rape and sexual assault and trauma, particularly when it comes to femme trauma. Um, and like rewatching this film today, I was like, oh, that's right. All this stuff happens. Cause I was kind of like going over the plot points just so that I didn't uh, miss anything that maybe my, my child brain didn't remember or my, I was probably uh, very high in California. Uh, spe- <laughs> speaking of pot. Uh, when I <laughs> Don't know what that is, but keep talking. <laughs> when I watched it um, in California in my thirties, but um, I feel like Lynch as, as well as the performers, captures very well the way that trauma particularly from rape and being stuck in an abusive relationship where it's you know rape is a consistent and sexual violence is a consistent factor i feel like he he really does a good job or a better job than i've seen most male directors of expressing the trauma um that Isabella Rossellini's character is going through before we even see what happens. Cause usually in films it's like, Oh, the bad thing happens. And then we see the fallout. Whereas you're, you're seeing her trauma immediately as soon as pretty much as soon as you meet her and you can see elements of it when he's like pretending to like um, spray the house down for, for pests. But um, I was particularly drawn to this part as as well as the rape scene, which is not something you'll usually hear me say, <laughs> yeah. um, be, because of that, because the trauma is, it's not like 
over the top, even though the film has like melodramatic elements to it, it's not over the top. Parts of it are quite subtle. And because of that, they come across very authentic in, in the way that it kind of unfolds. So by the, by the time we're seeing the rape scene, which is a very disturbing scene to watch. And I think that's what, you know, it rape, should be. Yeah. It, yeah. it should be. If you're going to show a rape scene, it shouldn't just like the, the camera pans to the side or you know like or it's glorified or it's fetishized which happens pretty often shot like a porn yeah yeah shot like porn and this isn't I mean I think most of it's from like one camera angle and it's like really fucked up and gross and icky and I'm like yeah this is like I know this sounds very strange but like if you're gonna be showing like the brutalization of another person like it should be make you feel that way it should be gross and icky and grimy and not overproduced and not shot from like 17 different stylistic angles like and i i just even even the way that her trauma continues to to be expressed even towards the end of the film um yeah i i just think you know and not just lynch but like lynch isabella rossellini um, Carl McLaughlin, Dennis Hopper, I think they all did an amazing job when it comes to a very difficult scene. And, and obviously this is my intimacy coordinator brain kicking in a little bit, but like a, a very difficult scene and they respected the subject matter in the scene in a way that I can't speak for all survivors, but for mm -hmm. me, like this, this is what those scenes should be. I mean, maybe not as like crazy as, as all the other Lynchian stuff going on, but like, it just, yeah, that, that's something that definitely really impresses me about the film. Um, and oh, sorry, one quick thing before, before I let somebody else speak, sorry. Um, the way that like, after, um, Jeffrey, sorry, I'm so mm -hmm. bad. My ADHD does not allow me to remember character names. <laughs> uh, the the way that um, I'll just use their their actual names. The way that Carl McLaughlin witnesses things from the closet, and when Isabella Rossellini lets him out, the way that he like takes care of her, it's almost like it reminded me a lot of aftercare that mm -hmm. you see in like you know really intense BDSM and stuff but like and that shot is just iconic with him cradling her head and you know the blue eyeshadow and that's a whole nother thing but um yeah I just that 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 beautiful moment there before they start their own kind of BDSM relationship like mm -hmm. uh, just chef's kiss to all of that um so well done so well done and so, something you 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 mentioned that I hadn't processed, but you make a, a wonderful point with Amber, is when you said that David Lynch shows Isabella Rossellini's trauma before Frank is even introduced to this film. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that is probably like this was this is a that it is a very hard scene to watch. And what's interesting, I was trying, I was trying to dissect it just now because you're right. It is just one camera angle. It's pretty much from the perspective of Kyle McLaughlin from mm -hmm. from the closet. From the closet, yeah. And please correct me if I'm wrong because I wasn't. I was kind of looking away through good portions of that scene. Um, I don't believe there's really much, if any, nudity shown, but it's still a very graphic scene. You know, I have seen far more graphic scenes in terms of of sexual violence or nudity mm -hmm. in movies 
but they haven't affected me in the way that this one did. Well, they they did, but in a different way that this one affected me. And I think it's because of what you touched on before is seeing the trauma that she already has before his character even enters the movie. And just this, you know, the second that you even she even hears his voice, everything changes for her. And I think that might be why it is so hard. I also, <laughs> I want to, excuse me, touch also on that, um, the exhilarating rape scene, right? Mike and I were talking about the Western genre on the break. Um, and when I think of like uh, how rape scenes are traditionally portrayed, a lot of the imagery comes from that genre and it's the bodice being ripped off, right? And you have the tits falling out and like this very passionate moment that, you know, maybe turns into lovemaking, but starts very violently. Um, and I think that, translates into a lot of the way that rape is portrayed um thinking about like game of thrones you know uh, very titillating one thing that i also want to bring up so david lynch for me is a very difficult director i think this is an example of a film where the end product is so beautiful and expressive and brings you on this fantastic character journey for every character involved but reading about the production of the film um, was alarming to me and it really I think demonstrated to me how much Isabella Rossellini and Dennis Hopper and Kyle MacLachlan in a way contributed to that scene because um, the the anecdote from that scene is that um, David Lynch would not stop laughing during the whole scene. And that could have been when he was uncomfortable, but I also like, I'm so fed up with white cis hat men, like, yeah. comfortable and like, you know I mean? Like, I don't care. I don't care if you're uncomfortable, like shut up, shut yeah. your mouth, duct tape it, whatever. But, um, but he, yeah, he apparently was laughing through the whole scene and um, he kept telling Isabella Rossellini that, oh, it's cause it, it just looks ridiculous. It's going to look great, but it looks ridiculous because you know, they're overacting, but so whenever she see, would rewatch that scene, she couldn't stop laughing. But when it was being filmed, she was really distressed. She was really frustrated mm. with them. It was a very frustrating experience for her. And I think Dennis Hopper is an actor who had a, you know, he's a fantastic actor. He's done lots of roles across the spectrum, but definitely is bad guys. You know, like he's very good at it. And he's very good at getting into that headspace and still respecting his scene partner. Right. And, um, to me, like that, the whole character arc that we're seeing, I have a lot of issues with David Lynch's work. Um, I think he does some things very well, but I also think he picks actors super well. And I mm -hmm. think so much, like his little stable of actors are so curated and are so good at working together and kind of, kind of managing him in some ways um, that I, I, you know, I really want to give credit also to the actors and not just, you know, David Lynch. Cause I, I think that he, you know, he, in many ways, is a fantastic director, um, is fantastic at picking characters, but I don't think he's always able to, like, bring a subject matter home by himself. Like, he needs someone else to do it. For sure. I mean, thank you for bringing that up, because I had absolutely no idea. I've never really read no. anything about the, the production notes, and that definitely casts a, a different light on things. And you're right, like, there are a lot of reasons people can laugh, but, like, when you're the director and it's a really difficult scene, um, yeah, laughing is is not what you should be doing. Um, so extra yeah, I'm guessing as an intimacy coordinator, that would not have like. Yeah, no, I would have been like, you can shut the fuck up or get the fuck <laughs> out of here. Like and you're you're not needed for this scene, to be honest. But, what's um, so? Oh, please continue. Oh, I was just gonna say that highlights the importance of like a lot of people don't know what intimacy coordinators do, or if they hear the term, they're like, oh, you just deal with sex scenes, and it's like, <laughs> well, I. I, it's birth scenes, it's breastfeeding scenes, it's hospital scenes, it's bath scenes, it's shower scenes, it's, you know, um, I have a specific interest in 
pushing this profession to dealing, you know, being around and choreographing and, you know, all the things intimacy coordinators do for scenes that have domestic violence or intimate, intimate partner violence, because those are intimate scenes. They're just not always sexual in nature. And I think that that's a place that we really should be. So, and I haven't seen any other intimacy coordinators specialize in that. So that's kind of like, uh, where I'm kind of jimmying myself in, so to speak, in the intimacy coordination world. But um, yeah, I mean, intimacy coordination and intimacy coordinators, I don't even think existed back then, but he sure could have used one by the sound <laughs> that just yeah. would not fly. Yeah. Yeah. And what's kind of frustrates me about that story that you tell Josephine is thinking from the perspective of as a filmmaker, David Lynch wrote this scene. Sure did. And yet he's going to claim that it makes him uncomfortable to see it play out. And, you know, the the style of acting that a lot of actors have in a David Lynch film is very uh, indicative of his style. Like he he it's the best way I can I can say it. People make certain choices in a David Lynch film because it's probably the direction he's giving them. So what frustrates me is it's supposedly making him uncomfortable, yet he wrote the scene. He gave the actors the direction. Yeah. And he... They, I can't quite put into words where, where I'm trying to go with it, but... I don't There's know. Like a lack of ownership. It's like yes. this is happening to him, but he's literally the director. Like, no, you're directing this. That's. Um, did you know about the helium as well? I you... no, I actually yeah. had no idea. I was going to ask what he David was specifically. My man, talking. I have. I mean, I don't know anything about David Lynch's um, like interactions with drug use. Um, Dennis Hopper is a seasoned like. Oh yeah. The disco. He, you know, he's a seasoned drug user. Well documented. My, my boy. <laughs> yeah. My boy. Yeah, that's our, our our boy. Our boy. But um, David Lynch, I don't. He doesn't strike me as a heavy drug user. I don't know. You know, you never know. But um, he wanted the 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 um, propane tank to have helium in it, and. Uh, Dennis Hopper was like, no, let's try this. So Dennis Hopper is the one who recommended something different. Um, and to like script it as something different. Um, Cause I guess he was huffing something um, during that, at least one of the shots. Um, but afterwards, David Lynch was like, oh yeah, I guess that was a good idea because it would have kind of had like a comedic effect if he had spoken after like huffing the helium. And I was like, what? Like, where, what are you doing? Like, what is it going on in your brain that you thought helium would be like an appropriate, you know, thing in the scene? Like really straight. He just, you know, just wanted a propane tank and couldn't think of anything else to put in it. Like just really strange or whatever. I guess it's not a propane tank because there's no propane in it, but you know, like the, the metal the, tank. The tank. Yeah. yeah. I, I always just assumed it was oxygen. Like I thought. Yeah. Was, I thought like, he was getting an what oxygen. I thought. Issues, and it's no, I guess it's getting oxygen. I want to say it's ethyl nitrate. I'm going to like Google that. Right it's, now. it's interesting hearing these stories of David Lynch throwing out just really like ideas that just truly don't work because don't get me wrong. There's a lot like, like you said, Justin, there's a lot of things that David Lynch does really well. But he he's kind of held up in this certain light of of especially because he you know he notoriously won't explain his methodology and everything. It's it just really kind of feels like a and maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like a filmmaker who keeps 
he surrounds himself with really talented people. Yes. Um, and we should give some credit to uh, Pamela Guest, Joanna Ray, and Pat Golden, who cast this oh, film yes. and cast most of his stuff, um, who found who find these actors. Uh, he, I, I feel like he's he has all these talented people around here, him catching him mm. um, when things aren't quite working. Like his good ideas are working, but you know, he has enough people around him being like, yeah, that's not going to work. Let's try this instead. Definitely. I also, uh, fact check, ethyl nitrate is like an acid, so that's not what he's huffing. It's amyl nitrate, which is a, a precursor to poppers. It was a disco oh. drug. Um, it was uh, a, an angina medication that was used recreationally inhaled. So like yeah. we're talking... So that's our little LGBTQI plus. Uh, Thank you. I am very familiar uh, with that yeah. substance. Uh, yeah. No longer do I partake, but um, <laughs> I had and never in large quantities through an oxygen mask. Why not? Um, <laughs> but I'm really glad that David Lynch made like a movie so that we know not to do that. Like <laughs> I wouldn't have known not to do that had he not made this like you know this movie telling me. So I, just, I, I just love that Dennis Hopper's the one who suggested that. It's like, you would know about that. He That was my disco dude. Dennis yeah. He's like, I'm not doing poppers all the way through this film through an <laughs> oxygen mask. That will literally fry my brain <laughs> or <laughs> make my heart explode. No. I know. Um, I mean, good call. Incredible. Because <laughs> it would have been a very different movie had he actually been huffing uh, poppers <laughs> through the whole thing. Don't do poppers, kids. Uh, they're very, very bad. <laughs> you yeah if any, if, if any been, children are listening to this show oh my god i have a friend i have a friend who um visits me i'm 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 the like uh the the lesbian guest of all my gay male friends somehow like i'm the femme non-binary like guest they bring along to their like all of their kink events and like their club events even though it's just a bunch of dudes who are not into me and i'm not into them but the way they give out poppers. Like, oh my God, I feel so old. But I'm always like, guys, like, boys, like, please stop doing these. Stop taking poppers from these strange people. Like, this is insane. Like, we're walking around International international Mr. Leather um, down in Chicago. And there's just a table set up. And they're like, do you guys want to sample some poppers? And I'm like, I it's 10 a.m. I'm like wearing, you know, everyone around me is wearing a harness and no pants. Like, you want me to start doing recreational drugs right now? Like, in this hotel downtown, like three blocks from my work. Um, I did not partake, but Jesus. <laughs> I, I mean, I have to say it's probably uh, the gay man in me that like anytime somebody offers me poppers, ever somebody I know, I'm always like, sure. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm just like, yes, of course. Thank you so much for thinking of me. It's I mean, like it's so offered, generous. But... It's like they've offered me a scone and a cup of tea. I'm like, oh. Thank you. <laughs> just a little pick me up in the afternoon. Um, Summer, I have to say, Josephine, that that story is such a is such a fun um, uh, bookend to the story you told on the Spice World episode about you being the, the elder punk uh, watching out for the kids at the show. Oh my god, I am such an old auntie. My my little brother calls me auntie, which is like cute, but I'm not sure I love it yet. Um, but you know, I'm auntie right now, and they. I like God. Anytime I'm like, I can't go to the club anymore because I'm like, babies, like, get away from that man. <laughs> Don't take those strange drugs. You can have some of my marijuana. Get away from that. 
I would I I aspire to be in my auntie stage, uh, oh but goodness. I'm still definitely in my naughty daddy stage. Where... <laughs> that's a good place to be. I I feel like that stage for me was so brief. It was it was you had a blank of an eye, and then I had actual like nieces and nephews, and I just something changes in you when children yeah. enter your life. It's real. Yeah, I don't I don't surround myself by human children, so I think that has allowed <laughs> me to uh, continue good or kindle. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, like I I am nurturing and do try and look after the the younger folk. But um, yeah, I mean, at the, day, it. at the end of the day, I'm daddy, and there's just not much <laughs> we can do about it. It's good to know yourself. I'm really proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> This is the dynamic I was like hoping for when I had both of you on the show. It's like this is gonna you be. You just a had fun to bring episode. up poppers. Oh no, I did that. Oh wait. <laughs> yeah, I didn't bring them up. You did. Who's talking about poppers? Because we were trying to dissect what was going on with, with the, with the with mom. I don't even know what those are. I don't know. <laughs> I wish I didn't know. I think I've killed oh a lot of birds. <laughs> Cool. So we uh, we agree that this is like the LGBTQIA plus champion film that we needed in the eighties about disco drugs. I mean, as as I said, like uh, very briefly uh, during the intro, like this was a very formative film for me. I think watching Carl McGlo- like Carl McLaughlin's bum is like my <laughs> thrill, my is it the Thrill House moment. <laughs> That could be your thrill house moment. Is that what did it to you? That was it. Like that was. Yeah, amazing. I mean, I, I I have a few, but that uh that is probably the main one. But I I also used to get it confused with another film called Z and Two Noughts. Where yes. Oh my God. That movie is nuts. Of, there's a lot of '80s male bum that looks very similar. Um, and yeah, I watched that movie again and again and again and again. Unlike um the the long hiatus I had with Blue Velvet but yeah Carl McLaughlin's bomb and just like male nudity in that kind of context which was different from what I'd seen before sure. definitely awakened some some things in me because I was like well I know I'm not straight <laughs> for sure the way I am like consuming uh this uh, that sounds wrong consuming this grown grown man's bottom that's not what i meant but through through the medium of cinema it could be what you meant it's okay this scene (laughs) when i think back to it i'm really like yeah i think that's probably the first moment that i realized without really having a larger context that i was both trans and very very gay so um yeah, I'd like to like to thank Karl McLaughlin's bum for that. Can I keep talking about asses, like male asses, really quick? Go for um, it. And like having an awakening. This so show I, is all about tangents. Go for it. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, this show is all about ass. Like we're just, It is now. That's butts, butts. Um, I don't know. I took over the show. It's my show now. It can be about whatever I want it to be. Nice. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, gender, a spectrum, right? Like sexuality, a spectrum. We're constantly exploring and discovering things about ourselves. I am 33 and at 33 years old, I had another sexual awakening and it was to the film Dao, The Blade by Sui Hark, who did Once Upon a Time in China. Um, That film opens with this young girl teasing these two guys she's into, um, into fighting with each other. And then they get into a fight. They strip down because that's what happens when you get into a fight with your bro, with your broski. And then they all, they take a bath together. And then all the men in her father's sword shop start bathing and it's Ooh. just like 
30 naked men on the sea screen. And she's like peeking, you know, at them through this chink in the wall. And that film, like I'm sitting after work on like a Wednesday night in a full theater watching what I thought was going to be like a wuxia movie. And it was just like the horniest, like most homosexual experience I've ever had. And I don't know what I discovered about myself, but like things like changed in me. It was incredible. Okay, like I, I don't know. It was. It's an incredible movie. I think it's deeply misogynistic, and I like don't hate it for it. Like it was a really interesting way to do it. And there's definitely like lesbian subtext. Like there's all the shit going on, but like male nudity, we did not get enough of it as young people. Like it was not a thing in American cinema. Not it was not really sexualized not. like nearly enough. And even when they would try to throw us a little bone, like um. I keep bringing up Game of Thrones just because I hate that series. Uh, and I've seen all of it multiple times. But like, you know, when like you see the dick for like a moment and everyone yeah. was like, oh, they showed you dick. And it's like, it wasn't even sexualized. Like I wasn't turned on by the dick. Like I've seen lots of titties at this point and some butt, but not in like a way that's actually attractive. Like, yeah, there, it was no context dick, which also really irritates me. I need context. I need the, context. I need I need the storyline. I need to know where the dick <laughs> came from, what its goals are. <laughs> where it's going yes um yeah, yeah i need i need some cock context definitely that's uh, a new <laughs> podcast title cock context <laughs> done thank you amber rose All you right. are more welcome the dubro podcast has now changed cock context <laughs> we have to keep on changing the name at the top it's gonna, keep, it's gonna keep scratching it out <laughs> i was gonna very that sounds like an amazing film which i have not seen but i will definitely it's incredible uh, it's rare but i think you can probably i'm sure there's some shady corner of the internet you can find it so. I, I might be able to find it oh. cool well okay, sorry, you know, let, let me know when somebody finds it and um yeah i will be all over that but um yeah i i had a, a similar yet different experience to uh uh william frederickens i I, can't, I never pronounce his last name cruising which is another problematic film yes. um frankens i think yeah. Yeah. I, there, there's not really any dick in it but just like the level of like sweaty like it's so sweaty it's probably the sweatiest movie i've seen oh my god i just that was i watched that as a teenager and that was like another awakening and now i know it's a problematic film but i watch it because i'm like even though i can date men as a trans man as a mm -hmm. bi-gender person and there there are surprisingly a lot of gay men who are totally cool with that which I thought would never <laughs> never be but I would um put on when I was feeling particularly depressed I would put on cruising and just kind of like imagine that I was there like you know in those leather clubs uh like in a mask body and I don't get a lot of gender dysphoria like I'm pretty happy in a femme body for the most part like as an adult but like Oh, just like I would be sad, but like excited, but just know that I could never really experience that in that way. And that's why that film is still like, kind of makes my heart flutter a little bit, even though I know that it is problematic for a number, number of reasons, but just sure. like getting to experience that like underground leather daddy club is just, oh. You're gonna love the blade. You're gonna love it. I can't wait, you. I can't wait. Sweaty. Masses of men with tattoos. Oh, I mean, there's like a lot of other stuff going on in that movie, but like, let's be real. Like, I think you've mentioned the most important part. <laughs> yeah, and it happens within the first five minutes, and that's like all I want from a film. It's like everyone should be not straight. Like everyone should be like way yes. homo. And then also, um, 
I need male nudity within five minutes of it starting or I'm turning it off. Like that's it. Agreed. I sorry. Could I just uh, can Please. I add one one more? Of uh, course. Context? This is what the show is. <laughs> Everyone's gonna turn this on to hear about some Lynchian nonsense, and we'll be like male nudity. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I have a, a, a Lynch follow up question after this, but I oh, want to okay. hear. I want right, to hear. Ambrose, laid on us. Go for Fantastic. it. And th this is not like an overtly queer piece of cinema, and it is uh, television. Uh, I don't know if anyone's seen uh, Swarm. It's like a short series. Uh, I believe it's on Amazon. I just started watching it. Yeah, I think um, Donald uh, Glover. Donald Glover, yeah, it's his yeah. show. I, I watched. A oh, I heard about this. Yes, I watched it a little while ago, and it's not overtly queer, but there are definitely some like hardcore lesbian vibes throughout it, which I also very much appreciate as a bi-gender gay person. Uh, I'm more in touch with my gay mask side than my sapphic side, but that is uh, still there. Um, and yeah, it, there were a lot of interesting lesbian undertones that are quite different from uh, like movies and shows that are specifically about lesbians or have like lesbian characters. Um, I don't want to spoil it for you if you if you are yeah, intending to watch it. But um, yeah, <laughs> just the, the 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 relationships between women, whether they are like long-standing relationships or new relationships, um, there there's a lot of lesbian undertones in very interesting and different ways because the the premise of the show is pretty gritty and murder-ridden to begin with, um, and I I do love a film show movie uh performance art <laughs> that like femmes are killing men uh don't we all kind of my jam yeah uh not you know like fake killing them in the sense of a performance art piece i don't mean actually, <laughs> actually. Well, you said too much, i wouldn't I I would, uh cool. yeah i wouldn't have caveated that but that's fine that's fine uh but yeah there's this one scene with uh, one of the younger uh, McCulkins. I can't remember his name. He's kind of like... One, I think that one's Kiernan? Yeah, Kiernan McCulkin. Uh, and suddenly there's just like a bowl of strawberries. And <laughs> I, I remember this scene. Yeah, there's a bowl of strawberries and Kieran McCulkin's dick just pre like flaccid dick pressed up oh, against and it, the bowl. It's a see-through bowl as well. Yeah, a glass bowl. I, this is amazing and i took Iconic. so many like it's just like i mean there is a little bit of context to the cock but not enough it's just suddenly there but not in a game of thrones way like oh we're trying to be equal here's a dick for you um yeah it just i took so many uh photos of it because i'm gonna be, <laughs> i'm going to repurpose it into a 16 millimeter film with some other incredible uh, other fun stuff but yeah i mean it's a very strange and striking image but yeah just like it's a it's a weird mix of like full-on like uh dick but a lot of like sapphic undertones to the show interesting show um i, I want to mention it's donald glover and then janine neighbors is the co-creator yes. yes. so yeah it there is i believe she is a sapphic she's definitely a femme yes perfect so that's there for sure well one thing i wanted to ask Amber, you had mentioned um, that Blue Velvet for you was a formative movie. Um, I was hoping you could um, explain that a little bit more. Besides uh, Kyle McLaughlin's butt, 
Um, what about this film? Uh, what about this film stuck with you, especially at a young age where you have such a vivid memory of it and it stuck with you and you kept coming back with it uh, or back to it, I should say. What about this film kind of wormed its way into your brain? Uh, like one of, from a cinema, from not so much like a, a personal um, lens, but from a cinematic lens or an artistic lens or an aesthetic lens, uh, one of the first shots with the red roses and the white picket fence yes. and the blue mm. sky Iconic. Is, is something that, I mean, obviously my uh, name is Rose, but like that 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 image has stuck with me a long time and it is exactly how I remembered it from when I was like a wee little uh tyke but um yeah the the transition from that to the watering of the garden um I still have like a really weird not full-on phobia but like uh, uncomfortability around kinked hoses. I really don't like them and I think it stems from the scene because he's having a heart attack. Um, he's having a heart attack, right? That's that's. What I believe happens. so. Yeah. yeah, when he falls over, yeah. Yeah, um, but the hose is all kinked and that. Mm -hmm. in As a kid, I thought that the hose took his ear off and that's how the ear... Oh, yeah. Mm. Be. That logic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, and then he's in the hospital and I thought he was the one that lost the ear. So, like, totally. so obviously, like, I wasn't great at connecting all the I mean, you were a, a child. Like, that is literally the sequence of events in the films. Like, I feel like yeah. that was a very... Yeah, like, in, ter in yeah. terms of, like, you know, the theory of montage editing, that makes the most sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I kind of blocked out the bugs and stuff under the ground, but like I think that's the part where I got Do you remember scared. the puppy drink in the water? Yes, out of the hose. <laughs> it's very phallic. <laughs> very phallic. I didn't pick up on that as a kid, but I definitely <laughs> did as an adult. I was like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> I love that you brought up those roses because um rewatching this, I couldn't stop thinking about American Beauty, um, that mm. film, and there's no way that film isn't referencing Blue Velvet. Oh yeah, uh, it has to be. And I, I mean, I don't. I really dislike that movie in so many ways. But yeah, it was the blue velvet of that next gen, I think. Mm -hmm. But toned down because we lost, uh, we lost some of our edge. But anyway, as an American film culture, yeah, which is definitely sad. Um, but yeah, I and I, I also like the way that it bookends with that at the end. But we get like a kind of before we get those red roses and the white picket fence we get like the yellow tulips as well mm -hmm. yes. and i think because like rose has always been my flower tulips have always been my mom's flower so i think because i watched this with my mom and her <laughs> and my dad and yeah. um like those stuck in my head and i think also because i was a kid like those like those shots are very easy to replicate in like drawings or just like imagining in, in your mind. Um, so yeah, though, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure how formative those were, but they're definitely shots that like stick in my mind. And I'm kind of a, a bit of a fan of like bookending uh, to a certain extent in my own filmmaking. And I think maybe that has something to do with it. Cause I just think that's a really nice bookend. That's not like totally the same but it it is still a, a, a bookend of sorts with that going back to that same shot, which I think is quite iconic. And as Josephine said, has, you know, like inspired shots in other films, you know, like likely American Beauty and a whole bunch of, of other films as well. 
Yeah, I love it. You mentioned tulips because I was thinking about sinister tulips in Lynch's films. Um, a very important scene to me as a young person was David Lynch's Dune when the Baron Harkonnen, the um, you know, AIDS stand-in Harkonnen that Lynch invented, um, is like killing and sexually assaulting one of his you know servants or whatever and like ripping out the blood plug and he's on top of these purple tulips and like yep. that totally connected for me to this film like what is it with david lynch and tulips like what does he have against them what did they do to him something something very deep and very sinister i don't know but that's another scene that is like that i watched way too young that is burst yes. a memory the plug coming out yes yeah dune um dune is a film that like i didn't you know Blue Velvet is not one that I watched young enough to where it like stuck with me, but Dune stuck with me. I watched it very young. And like that scene in particular was so uncomfortable for me and exciting as a kid. Yeah. Right. Cause like the idea of like this passion was very attractive to me as a child before I knew what was going on. But then also it's a terrifying scene. Like it just, it, there's nothing about it. That's like, you know, it's not supposed to be sexy or anything. It's very horrifying. Yeah. But um, I also think, you know, part of this movie, David Lynch has a really weird thing about um, homosexuality. Not good mm -hmm. with it. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we, we get some some trans characters in some of his work that, you know, are better than other things of the era and, and some other like couples and things like that. But, you know, Dune had a, a guy who he gave the visual symptoms of AIDS, um, HIV AIDS, and as a very negative evil person. And that's mm. like really fucked up. And yeah. then I do think that um, part of the um, terror and the undercurrent um, of like what is threatening this very idyllic small town in Blue Velvet, it, part of it is homosexuality, right? It's queerness. It's this very macho Dennis Hopper forcing a very clean cut college boy to drink a beer. You know, like that's a very gay panic scene to me. Um, especially in, I, I was telling Mike before we started, I have a picture of Ronald Reagan on my computer right now to remind me what era we're in, which is we're under Reaganism and especially right. under Reaganism. It's like the, uh, you know, the AIDS crisis is hitting or about to hit. And um, that was from drugs, but also from gay sex under Reaganism. Like that, those are the only two ways that we talk about it, but from gay drugs. And I think that that is a, a threat that David Lynch portrays a lot. So That's interesting. I've been, and since I watched the movie, I've been trying to, put together the way that beer is represented in this film because a, at, at you know first i jokingly said that like heineken must have sponsored this film but like this movie's not big enough for heineken to give a fuck <laughs> um and i just I kept trying to put together like um kyle mclaughlin's just kind of obsession with heineken and how much he talks about it in that one scene and then the the way that um um uh, Dennis Hopper's character just kind of shuts it down. And I never once considered it being um, what you were saying about, um, <laughs> you know, essentially trying to butch him up, like, you know, drink a man, manly beer. And I, and like, it, there was that, but I was not thinking about the, the extra context behind it. You know, this, this, this fear almost. Um, Is blue velvet in the Midwest? Do we know where, was this supposed to be California, the Midwest? Do we remember? I, uh, I feel like it's North I, Carolina. I, North Carolina. Oh, okay. North Carolina? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's totally, I don't know. Cause in the Midwest, like beer culture is obviously a whole thing. Yes. Absolutely. You know, Milwaukeeans here in one form or another, like, um, you know, PBR 
is a cult, a way of life, a culture. Um, I can't drink beer and it's, you know, it's part of me, but, um, the, yeah. So that like, to me felt very Midwestern and like your dad saying a lot like, of this oh, movie felt well, kind of Midwestern. You gotta have a Budweiser. Like you can't drink that sissy beer, you know, to, you know, like, but, but it's, uh, I mean, David Lynch, as much as he moved around is very Midwestern. Like I would say, like, he's a very Midwestern director. Um, like he grew up mostly in the Midwest and then yeah. ended up in LA, you know, um, and did, did embrace that. But I would say, you know, and hearing him talk, it's Midwesterner. The weather today, the weather today. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring up the way that he um, brings, I mean, essentially gay panic into mm-hmm. his film and like AIDS panic uh into his film work i haven't seen june in a really long time so i can't remember that stuff specifically but um yeah i i guess i always like and i this is just coming from like my lens and my brain and not like david lynch is somebody i never really did a lot of research or digging into because i was like i don't know if i want to find all the grimy bits (laughs) about him unless he's done something really horrible I think I just want to like, and he, he never really like talks about his work anyway. So it's just kind of like, whatever. Um, but yeah, like in a, in a lot of his, like even in Twin Peaks, there are these quite intimate and close relationships between like masculine straight male characters that like definitely have like or at least to me I interpret it as queer coding and I always mm-hmm. thought that there was like maybe some part of Lynch where he was like jealous or like kind of like wished he could be gay or was like exploring his feelings around homosexuality particularly as it pertains to like mask mask homosexuality and I mean maybe that's where the like fear and all of that stuff comes in and I'm not saying that 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 makes it okay or of course not no um, yeah. excuses it I just always kind of I don't know I just always kind of thought like maybe he wanted to be a little bit gay or something or he was a bit jealous or something because uh, like even as a kid like watching um Twin Peaks when it first aired I was a little bit older but like I, I mean, like, I fully knew who gay people were <laughs> yeah. by that stage. Um, and uh, definitely uh, realized that I had an attraction to mask and, and femme people by then. But, yeah, like, I, I picked up a, a lot of um, what I perceived or maybe wanted to be queer coding, particularly in, in Twin Peaks and going back and watching Blue Velvet. Um Particularly, even though it is an aggressive scene, when um, Hopper, like, puts on the lipstick and, like, kisses mm-hmm. Kyle McLaughlin, he's like, mm-hmm. I'll send you a love letter, I'll send you a love letter. And it's kind of like this intimacy, but then this aggression and this, like, back and, and, and forth in that scene. Um, yeah, like, I mean, I, I know it's aggressive, but I just felt like I was getting other things from that scene as well. Sure. Yeah. I love that. No, and I think that these things can be presented without necessarily being good or bad, right? Sometimes, like, and and Lynch is clearly exploring something, like something is going on from whatever lens he's doing it. Um, I was thinking about, as you're talking, from the other direction. So I grew up um, 
with a lot of, I was very lucky. I had a lot of gay role models growing up. I grew up uh, in a very liberal religious situation. I grew up um, non-denominational Quaker, so like not Christian, but Quaker. And I, I knew like <laughs> a lot of lesbian couples, a lot of gay male couples who've been together for 20, 30 years. Um, and, but I grew up completely separated from like the AIDS epidemic, which was still ongoing when I was a young kid. Um, not that it ended, you know, it it's still ongoing in other parts of the world, but um, like I was totally separated from all of the stuff that would create the fear around being like, you know, gay or whatever. So when I started going to school and aside from just like the, the societal stuff, like I know, I know a lot of um, older gay elders now who did not explore it when they were younger because they were terrified of getting HIV AIDS and dying, right? Like, or getting another disease or whatever, um, or being killed by gay bashers, you know, like that was all very real. And I was totally separate from that. I didn't learn about any of that because I was, I was in this very kind of bubble of like liberalism. Um, it's very safe liberalism. And so when I went to school and started like hearing slurs and learning that like, um, and people, you know, started accusing me of being a lesbian in like middle school and high school, um, they were right, but you know, I wasn't being creepy. They were just uncomfortable with their sexuality or their bodies or whatever. But, um, but you know, it's like coming at from another direction. It was so alien to me that people would be so scared and like would, would interpret things this way. That it's interesting to see someone from the other side, I guess, from like Lynch, probably growing up, knowing all the very negative possibilities, like processing that. Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in Sydney uh, in uh, through the 80s, through most of the 80s. Uh, I was a kid in Sydney, Australia, which was like considered a, I'm using quotes, slum at the time. Yeah. Uh, full of punks and queers and people like it was a very multicultural area because Australia, I mean, Australia still has problems with racism, but like Australia was pretty racist back then. Mm -hmm. um, and so like I grew up in a very liberal, environment but like you know like I knew people who died due to AIDS I knew people who dry, died from drug overdoses and I knew people who it was called pufta bashing in a probably yeah. still is in some circles but it was very common and so like you know a lot a lot of uh my mom's friends and friends of friends like there there was a real fear um and I think because I, I didn't have the language or the, you know, like other people to, to look at back in the 80s, even though I was around a lot of queer people and definitely trans people, um, you know, when I came out as bi-gender um, a few years ago, I didn't even have a word for it in English. I, I, I made one up in Yiddish because I was like, I know what I feel, but I can't totally. find a word for it. But like, yeah, I mean, those things definitely impacted me in ways that I probably haven't even fully started to dig into um it, as well as all the media like I can't remember how I came across it but I must have been looking for something and there was this like AIDS commercial mm -hmm. um on television like on broadcast tv at the movies that was like the grim reaper just like bowling down people it was Jesus. really yeah it was really terrifying um, and so growing up in, in that atmosphere where like it wasn't gay people around, but it wasn't safe to be gay. I think it had only just been legalized or was being legalized, uh, when I was really little and, you know, like the, the fear of AIDS w was a very real thing, but there are definitely people who pushed it like that ad. And I can't even remember the context of that ad, but it, it was not 
it wasn't to help people. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's definitely that, that is a, that is a different world. Yeah. <laughs> as certainly. certainly, certainly. One thing I've been thinking about since I watched this movie was um, David Lynch has said this multiple times, but that, you know, there are certain films within his oeuvre that are more autobiographical than others. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is one of them because there's, you know, he, he came up with the, you know, there, he used to have a big field like this behind one of the homes he lived in to, he lived in growing up and the idea of an ear or some, you know, something you're not supposed to find showing up just fascinated him. And, you know, he grew up in a lot of neighborhoods like this. And then one thing I've been thinking about, is um so at the time and i did a little bit of research while we've been talking at the time and i think this movie came out in 1985 mm -hmm. david lynch had been uh remarried twice and the only reason i mentioned that is because i've been thinking about the the kyle mclaughlin character in this film and this kind of this idea of loss of innocence or discovering of self um, you know, this I think um, I believe Dennis Hopper's character says to him at one time, it makes some comment that um, the comic Lachlan reminds him of himself or mm -hmm. some line like that. And obviously, comic Lachlan has this tryst going on with uh, Isabel Rossellini. And then uh, he's also got this thing going on with Laura Dern. And then from what I've uh, read, too, that the original cut of this movie was like four hours long. And mm -hmm. Kyle McLaughlin's character also had a college sweetheart. That was cut completely Incredible. out of this film. And I, I can't help but, and you know, because later on in the film, Kyle McLaughlin has, is having these nightmares that are kind of intercut with his relationship with Isabella Rossellini that are causing him to um, kind of freak out. And I imagine trying to figure out who he was or who he is. And I'm just, I've been thinking about this, and I don't really quite know where I'm going with this, um, this idea of, autobiographical elements of this guy who finds different things out of all these different people um, and kind of uses them for what they need to, because, you know, if you look at Dave Lynch's love life, he has been with many, many people and there's nothing wrong with that. There's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. But I'm also wondering too, if he's trying to figure out something about himself in this film and trying to figure out who he potentially is. Cause that's kind of what, you know, at, at this point in his life, I imagine he's a younger man trying to figure out what he wants or what he's doing, who he is. And I'm just, I can't stop viewing Kyle McLaughlin as, as a conduit for who David Lynch potentially saw himself as, which is interesting too, because Kyle McLaughlin plays, you know, he's usually the, um, the shining example of wide eyed innocence until he's not or you know or if he continues to be you know he's the one kind of discovering these these darker things in this world you know you have this wide-eyed um this kid who um can't leave well enough alone and decides to delve himself deeper and deeper into this seedy world that he probably shouldn't be mm -hmm. that even his his old grandmother tell him not to go near lincoln street and that's of course where the fuck he goes um so I don't really quite know where I'm going with this, but I'm, it's, it's a thought I've been working out since I've watched the film and trying to kind of put together the arc of Kyle McLaughlin and what David Lynch might be trying to say about the world himself or people viewed through that lens. Because while you have you know someone like Frank Booth, who is kind of the, the personification of pure evil, um, 
Kyle McLaughlin's not the personification of pure good. No. You know, it's like you don't really have that opposite side of the coin. Not that you necessarily need it, but oh, just kind of working through some thoughts here. Yeah, thinking about having seen it in college, um, I had a very negative reaction to Kyle McLaughlin's character in this film because yes, he's tell me about not. That. He is a cheater. He is not. He has no fidelity. And I, and when I'm watching it as an older queer person who's you know been in polyamorous relationships, been in monogamish relationships, like et cetera, et cetera, like. I was reacting to this idea that was pushed on us, um, I think 80s through 90s through 2000s, that when you're in college, you find your partner and then you marry them and then you buy a house and then you have kids. And like, that's how it's supposed to go. And Kyle McLaughlin was supposed to find a girl and fall in love with her. And that girl was Laura Dern, like, obviously. And he's clearly chafing against that. And I'm sure David Lynch chafed against that. But he is the age where he is. And, and for me, viewing him as this like traditional cinema hero at, at that age when I was 21, 22, he was supposed to uh, find the girl, marry her, fall in love. And they were, you know, that was supposed to be it. But instead he's like screwing around all over. And you could easily read this movie as polyamorous, like as a, you know, as fucked up as it is. Laura Dern clearly like knows what's going on. Like, you know, um, not that she's like totally cool with it. Cause like all of it is incredibly fucked up. And if like that were my partner, I'd be like, you're in a really healthy, unhealthy relationship with your partner. And I know I can't tell you what to do, but like, please, stop um please for all of us but um you know it's like i do think that this film is partially chase chafing against not to make it like super gay again you know traditional monogamous monogamous heterosexuality like yeah um and i don't think he's you know he's exploring that and it doesn't i'm not sure there's any conclusions drawn because ever in the film is so messed up Mm -hmm. um even beautiful perfect laura dern is you know buying into some very fucked up shit. Um, and she clearly is used to, you know, cutting around her dad, right? Like she knows yeah. what's up. Um, and then she, has, she has, she has her sure. own romantic tryst too. She has her own like romance oh, right. going on when she meets Kyle McLaughlin and she does everything she can for them never to meet each other. All oh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah. She's perfect though. She didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> so. I, yeah, no, I, as I was listening to, both of you talk i just kept thinking that like this is in a weird way a coming of age story mm. and it's, it's not promoted as that and i don't think i've ever like overtly thought about it like that but i think that's one of the reasons that it was so appealing to me as a young child and remember you must remember i grew up around like punks and in share households and like a very different like young child lifestyle and like going and standing outside bars for like punk shows and stuff like very i I lived in a very different world to like most five-year-olds so like Mm -hmm. i think my brain was ticking a bit further along than uh maybe your average five-year-old but i think maybe that's one of the reasons that i was very drawn to this film and i've always kind of held it like pretty close to me despite not going back to watch for like 30 years or however long it was um but because it is sort of a coming of age film and i think particularly through an australian lens where like one thing i've noticed about um american cinema and it's not all of american cinema but kind of like mainstream or Mm -hmm. towards the mainstream is that like there has to be like good and evil absolutely you know like 
the murkiness of human nature is not necessarily explored that much because there has to be a very clear good guy and a very clear bad guy. Whereas Australian cinema characters are a lot more murky. And I don't mm-hmm. want to say like complex as in like there is no complex characters in American cinema because that's obviously not true. But um, yeah, I think that also appealed to me that like he's a person, so he does some shitty things, and but he's not completely horrible. And I think like I just don't view things as in um, like looking for who's good and who's evil because I want to see the complexity mm-hmm. in in their characters and, and blending that into it being like a coming of age story. Um, and Josephine, I know you said like you really didn't like Carl McLaughlin's character the first time you watched it, like. I both was in love with him and wanted to be him. Like he has always been, he has always been the character that like I connected the most to. And there's a really I'm not good with quotes, but I wrote this one down because when I heard it, I was like, oh yes, oh my god, I remember this. Um, there's a quote. I, I think it's Laura Dern. Um, her character that says, I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert to Carmen Laughlin. <laughs> and I'm yes. like, well, is that, that it? nutshell (laughs) i love that and i um i mean i have a different view on him now that i'm like a more fully formed adult at 21 i was not i was barely an adult if even quotes um i wasn't even like out as like a queer person like in any regard at all um i i also i i wanted to say too i mean i think it's okay to generalize a little bit when we're talking about these things like you don't need to keep I don't think Mike and I are going to be like offended if you're like American cinema is fucking simplistic as hell. And like, like what we get it, we get it. but maybe Mike will, but I'll be fine. But so, um, well, so many people are though. I think it's just like an inbuilt. I get that after going through two film degrees. Like, <laughs> Oof. Yeah. People get yeah, there when couldn't you pay me to get a film degree. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I, I can imagine. Um, <laughs> But I, um, I, you know, before I mentioned American Beauty and I was talking about how we lost our edge in American cinema, and I did mean the mainstream, I was thinking, I was, as I was rewatching this film for this podcast, I was thinking about Greg Araki's, um, you know, oeuvre, to use Mike's word, and Doom Generation, I think is a great, like, generational, because that was, like, I think 95, so it's, like, maybe 10 years later. So, like, you know, a great generational jump to this film. And that is a film full of shitbags doing shitbag things that we still are on the side of or we're exploring. Everyone's very polyamorous. There's gay stuff happening, but not quite. Like, we're almost there. Um, They wouldn't let Greg do that on screen, unfortunately. But um, I was thinking about that, and I also was thinking about... um, Oh, shoot, this was going somewhere really good. Now I've like totally lost it. I don't know. I've never had a thought in my life, apparently. It's gone forever. I'm so sorry. I feel like I <laughs> No, 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 no. You are you are totally fine. Um, but Greg Araki is great, is my point. That's let's just do a little <laughs> plug for my man. Greg Araki. Whatever. Down with heterosexuality. <laughs> sorry, Mike. Here, here. <laughs> I, I knew what I was getting into when I invited you both on the show. God, I'm gonna try to think about it, but I think it's. Gone. I know I was, I was kind of giving you some time to to see if it came back to you because that's that's the worst feeling is when you're like you're leading to a point and like it leading. just. The point was Doom Generation spiritual successor, maybe partially to this film. Um, yeah, American Beauty. I think. Oh, you know what? Um, Isabella Rossellini 
in the scene where you first see her sexually assaulted by Dennis Hopper. Um, she is enjoying it, <coughs> sort of. It's very complicated. You know, it's complicated, right? Like, like, like any survivor knows, those moments are very, very complicated. The afterwards is complicated. The lead up is complicated. It happening is complicated. This film was banned um, mostly because of that scene, because it showed a sexual assault survivor and victim in the scene um, enjoying it. That's what audiences got from it, that she was enjoying it because you either enjoy or dislike what's happening there. Like that's how, you know, American minds work. Mm. And that's so, and I think that it being banned in some cinemas for that reason. And the fact that we can't have that dichotomy without pulling it apart or without being like, what happened was bad. She's not allowed to have trauma because it was bad. And now she's immediately going to get over it because it was bad. Um, I think that softened that era of cinema. Like, I think that we were trending. It was, it was, it was a symptom of a trend towards that, la that total duality, right? Dichotomies. Like we can't have gray. It needs to be black or white. Mm. Um, and uh, dichotomy is the wrong word there, but you get dualities, whatever. Yeah. Uh, no, that's also the wrong word, whatever binaries. So, but yeah, you can't have those binaries or you have to have binaries. You can't have any, anything else. You can't have a dichotomy, which I think is yeah. happening in that scene. Um, and I do think that led to like American Beauty, where you get this very confusing relationship about a pedophile who is a really good guy because he doesn't actually sleep with her. Then he kills himself. So, yeah, I mean, I feel you know not to not to get too deep into uh, that murky water of things, but <laughs> I, I I think that like you know a lot of men, and this is not just in the U.S., a lot of men uh, like to tell themselves that they're good people. Because, you know, while I think these things, and I want to do these things, and maybe I've done these things, but I haven't done those things. And so, like, I'm a good dude. And I think that that, you know, like, as well as being a, a symptom of patriarchal society under white supremacist, white supremacy, like, it also, that shows up in cinema. Yes. That, like, the good dude, like, I'm still a good dude, but maybe I've done a couple of things wrong. And I and I, I mean that in a different way from, like, characters are complex and, mm -hmm. like, you know, it, it, do some shitty things, do some good things. It, they're confused themselves. I'm talking more about kind of, like, more ar archetypal, you know, saviors or heroes within um, cinema who do horrible things, but they're you know there's still that like but i'm still a good dude kind of that's the anti-hero right like that's um in some ways like it's the a part of the anti-hero archetype is like i may have killed a bunch of people but like you know i <laughs> um i also we were talking about i keep bringing up westerns because i'm in the middle of a project researching westerns uh after presenting on them but that's a, that's also an archetype within the western um you know, it, once you get past the white white hat, bat, black hat era, when you get more into that anti-hero era, there are Western stars who sexually assault women on screen um, or like in within romances. And then, but they're the good guy in the end. Like they're, we're supposed to read them as good, but these women like put themselves in the situation or they're sex workers or whatever, or, or actually this is very passionate sex, even though she's saying no the whole time, like that's what's passionate sex looks like. You know, like it's horrifying to watch, but at the end, he's going to shoot the bad guy, save the town. Like, yeah. and we're supposed to just, and we, and it's, it's, we, you know, people, bad people can do good things. Like that's, that should be portrayed, should be talked about, but that's not how it's portrayed in a Western, right? In a Western, he is the good guy and he's going to walk away and we're going to be like, man, what a badass. Like, I want to be like him. 
Like that's supposed to be the end. And you mentioning that is like one of the biggest issues I had. So a couple seasons ago, uh, I, we discussed on this show, uh, the Clint Eastwood movie high plains drifter. And there is a, uh, a rape scene in that movie mm-hmm. where he rapes this woman and he is supposed to be the hero. And it just really like ruined the entire movie for me because there was no way, no matter how many people who were trying to like explain away that scene, which was also kind of sickening. Um, there's no way I could understand. I, I could fathom why they would have your hero, the person who in a Western who that really plays by those archetypes, why he would do that. And spoiler for High Plains Drifter, you know, the whole idea is that he's getting revenge on this town. Well, this character had nothing to do with the people that he's getting revenge on. So it just becomes a power thing. And it really ruined that entire movie for me. Harrison Ford in Blade Runner. He rapes uh, whatever her name is. The... um the Simu Lakram, whatever her name is. Uh, she says no and tries to leave and he prevents her and then has sex with her. And she wakes up the next morning in a daze. It's very like, um, what's that racist movie about the South? With Brother Butler? of a Nation? No, oh. <laughs> that's the original, the other yeah. one. Um, Gone with the Wind. Ah, yeah. It's very Gone with the Wind, like, right? Because mm-hmm. like the marital rape scene is like the scene where she's finally in love with him and has bought in and then he leaves, right? Like, that's and Rhett Butler is a good dude. He's messed up, but like he loves her, and then he maritally rapes her. Like it's really you know mm-hmm. it's but yeah Harrison Ford's character in Blade Runner. That is and that's my like uh, line that I die on, especially with science fiction fans, because nobody like men cannot see that that was a rape scene because Harrison mm-hmm. Ford is so cool. She's so beautiful. She's looking at him so lovingly in the morning. Like um, you know it's 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 total cognitive disconnect, and that's. It being distressing to you, Mike, that is what I don't want to like speak for Amber, but like my entire existence and experiences with men has mostly been dudes being like, yeah, I didn't see it that way. I don't know. Like, I think you're just you're not understanding this thing that like sort of also happened to you. Like, you don't get it. You're maybe not getting it. Let me explain it to you. Like, that is that has been 33 years of my existence. Like Mm -hmm. the gaslighting. Yep. Uh, No, I definitely agree with that Um, in life and in cinema. (laughs) Um, As in all things in life and cinema, I guess. In life and in art, uh, yeah. Uh, I feel like things are very slowly changing. <laughs> Obviously, some uh, some have always thought this stuff was horrible and seen women as people. Certainly. But I, I think one of the big issues is that the majority of cishet white men still don't see women as being human beings and particularly when they're consuming media that is made by cishet white men for them cishet white men um yeah they they just think everything that happens is is kosher um and you know obviously not to get like too psychological about it but you know the way that they're brought up is socialized out of them yeah to, to sexualize and objectify um, femme presenting people and not truly see them as human beings. Uh, but yeah, like it, 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 it's very, 
it's very unfortunate and I feel like I could write an entire book on uh, the way that sexual violence is uh, dealt with and mishandled in cinema because like, whew, do I, <laughs> do I have uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, individual essays in my head about certain films, but um, yeah, now I've lost my point. Oh no, it's okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, I just, oh, that's what I was going to say. I, I feel like in my filmmaking, uh, when I'm doing things with actors or even when I'm using like repurposed um, cinema, I'm a big fan of the anti-hero, but not that kind of anti-hero. Certainly. Because to me, to me that's, that person is still branded as the hero. Um, to me, the anti-hero would be the dude who's like, I don't know, Robin Banks and doing some low <laughs> stuff and then like shoots the rapist in the head and sure, everyone sure. still thinks he's an asshole that that to me would be the anti-hero but um yeah I like I I mean I, I, I really enjoy the anti-hero and if I'm gonna be putting labels on my characters in a lot of films that I've made I definitely have anti-heroes including one that I'm gearing up to try and get made again this winter um but yeah, in a in a in a different in a different way to the way I think that a lot of people would view an an antihero. I think we can redefine that archetype. And not that there aren't antiheroes that I'm like I'm all about assholes who do good things uh, mm. that everyone ends up hating because they're dicks. Like I sometimes feel like one in real life. Uh, it's great. It's fine. But um, I no, I love your having your perspective on that. And I also not to like put anything onto your experiences, Mike, but even the idea of like men being socialized to see femme women or femme people as um, women and femme presenting people as like something to be sexualized, dehumanized. Um, mm -hmm. Even the experience of sitting around with your dude bros and them going, oh no, that wasn't a rape scene. Like, come on, like, what, what are you talking about? Like, like that's fucked up. And that's, mm -hmm. but that's what happens from birth, right? It's like yeah. um, the gaslighting is on all of us and it's, I do think it's socialized. Like, uh, you know, a young boy does not view a young, you know, AFAB person as anything other than a playmate, right? Like, they're not thinking like, oh, like, they can't throw the ball with me or whatever. Like, you know, that's socialized into them that this person is exists for their pleasure and or exists to serve them and or exists as a lesser being that needs to be like protected or whatever. Like, yeah. No, I think that's ex extremely well said. <laughs> Great, because I feel tired as hell. I don't know what I'm saying at this point. Uh, no, it's fine. And on that note, we could probably start wrapping up soon just because uh, it is getting <laughs> kind of late. Um, so before we move on to you know the, the final part of the show, uh, which is the Thrill House moment, I wanted to just ask if there's anything else you wanted to say about Blue Velvet. I, know, I feel like there's a lot we could still say, but is there any final thoughts or anything with Blue Velvet? It's a really pretty movie. Like we didn't talk about filmmaking or like uh, for me, it's like the mise-en-scene in this film, like this, the sets, the costumes, like what a, what a bunch of finite choices were made to create this, like, you know, these jewel box sets that are totally enclosed and have this amazing action happening, like a really fine piece of filmmaking that we didn't touch on at all. No. Just fine. Yeah. I guess I can lead on a little bit 
from that. Uh, I have a friend in LA. I mean, we're not super close anymore, but uh, I know <laughs> a person in LA for no reason. <laughs> totally fine. Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but she owns a clothing line and she makes robes like velvet robes. Oh. And I'm waiting for a blue velvet robe because I would buy like, fucking four of them just for myself in case I ever lost one or a damaged one. Oh, I, I would buy one too. I know. Yeah. I was thinking about a velvet robe this morning. That's so weird. This is, you know, I, synchronicity. I, I keep kind of like putting stuff in the comments, but I think I might have to contact her directly and be like, dude, I don't know Listen. if you've so many colors. Why have you not done a blue velvet robe? Like it would sell like mm -hmm. hot so there's, there's obviously uh, the blue velvet robe, but one of my, apart from Carmel Glockland's bum, one of my... <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my other thrill house moments uh is the blue eyeshadow um that uh isabella rossellini wears like i have been obsessed with blue eyeshadow particularly with a dark or red lip since i was a kid uh the first time my dad took me to work with him at the abc which is like the australian broadcasting uh mm -hmm. Uh, where he worked on kids TV. I did my own makeup at like two in the morning because being a set dresser, we had to get there really early. Um, did my own makeup and had some like real intense blue eyeshadow happening um, that I think shocked everyone except the makeup department who were like, yes, we see. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, like blue eyeshadow is still, uh, something I am obsessed with and the film that I'm trying to get made, uh, that I keep kind of, uh, floating in and out of during this conversation, it's going to be a 16 millimeter black and white film. Uh, but the anti-hero protagonist, uh, lead is still going to be wearing blue eyeshadow because uh -huh. I, I just, I, I, I need those little details within my film. Um, and yeah, the, the, the blue eyeshadow is um, just all by itself, <laughs> not even really within context to anything else. That is uh, something else that just like grabbed me and has had a hold of me uh, for, you know, a good few decades. I love that you brought up makeup because I am obsessed with um, Lady Vengeance's red eyeshadow. Mm. Um, and I would love to do like a series on like, uh just you know and and her whole thing was like you know she's getting revenge or whatever but it wasn't really related and and Isabella Rossellini is a lounge singer right like but those those motifs aren't directly related to what's going on like they don't they don't have like dramatic scenes where they're becoming their character necessarily like I mean that film the character that the film's named for she she puts it on one time and someone's like what's with the eyeshadow but like that's it it's there's not some dramatic scene where she's like cutting her hair and like doing her makeup you know it's just like oh no this is who i am now and i i am obsessed with that too like but certainly in this film as well that blue eyeshadow is this beautiful motif makeup in cinema is like a a whole different like conversation or series yes. of conversation oh yeah it, yes I, I am with you on that. I, I love I love the use of makeup where it's not like, oh, this is how it came to be. It's just like either something they happen to do or the way that they already present themselves. But there are these such iconic moments mm -hmm. that are linked to these films and these characters. Um, and yeah, it just, to me, it comes back to like, showing the humanity of the character that they're not just this like one dimensional, um, you know, made up thing for entertainment that they're, you know, the characters are, you know, 
supposed to be presenting like real and authentic people and it's like little details like that that i really um get excited about yeah and i would say like for me one thing that i think this movie does really well um is this concept of big world small window mm -hmm. where it's you know something that later on when david lynch and mark frost would go on to do twin peaks they could do you know, they could show more of this type of world but if you think about it this movie is you know all you have is isabella rossellini's apartment mm -hmm. like maybe one or two other apartments the the club which i can't remember mm -hmm. the, was it the slow club um uh, laura dern's house and like that's it but we know that this like we we have a feeling of how deep all this goes and how big this world is but we only see just a really small little piece of it but that's all we necessarily need to see and uh, that actually kind of leads into my thrill house moment where once again like the, the the scene that stuck with me since i was young till even now is just him discovering that ear and that mm -hmm. ear is just kind of what leads you into that big world but you're just seeing it from a really small window like that and then Josephine, do you have a thrill house moment? We've heard Amber's. <laughs> uh, what's the thrill house moment again? Explain the hypothesis here. Yeah, the thrill house moment is just you're like, yeah, the scene, you're kind of your clincher scene, the scene that kind of made you sit up and realize that you're into this, or the scene that just kind of sticks out to you the most. Just, you know, favorite little bit. Um, See, I, it's hard for me because I don't think as much as I've talked about this movie, as much as I got out of it, I'm not sure. I still am not sure that I like this film. Like, I think it's and a super fair. important film. I think it's a very good film. Yeah. I don't think I like it. Like, and um, that's fair. And sounds that's a like real, you know, but um, yeah, I don't think that this film has one for me. Uh, and I do think as much as I struggle with David Lynch's work, even the films that I hate of his the most, uh, like Mulholland Drive, which shocks everybody, but I hate that movie. I hate it so much. That movie has thrill house moments for me, and this film does not. I just feel like eh, about oh, it. Like it's beautiful. You know, it was really well made. I got what he was trying to do. I got what he was saying, but did not draw me in. That's perfectly fine. All right. So the last thing I want to do just before we wrap this up is Amber, I want to give you the microphone and tell us about the Milwaukee Illuminate Film Festival and give us all the information so anyone listening can support. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the Milwaukee Illuminate Film Festival, or MIF for short, is a new local festival uh, here in Milwaukee uh, that showcases and highlights the work of underrepresented artists and artists from marginalized communities. Um, we are ramping up to have our first event soon uh we're still uh working on a venue and an exact date but it will be late uh november early december uh that we will be having our first in-person event even though we are a local film festival we accept films from all over the world uh films between one and 20 minutes um are our jam uh, you can find us on our website at mkemiff.com, mkemiff. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at mke underscore miff. Uh, the same on TikTok, mke underscore miff. 
we just got a letterbox page where we are reviewing uh, films that kind of fit in with our vision as a film festival. Every Monday, one of our team members does a film review on Letterboxd. Um, we have a LinkedIn page. We're like, I, we just <laughs> got a social media. We just got a PR and social media intern. So we're like branching out everywhere. Um, but probably the best place to find us would be on our Instagram at mke underscore myth because we have a link tree with links to everything else. Uh, that's kind of our hub of communications. Uh, we have a film freeway page where you can submit your films. Uh, that can also be found through the link tree. But yeah, we're 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 a little baby festival. We're just uh, growing roots and um, really trying to do something a little bit different. Uh, as much as there are a lot of cishet white men who make films that I absolutely love, um, a lot of film festivals are catered to whether they mean to or not, particularly in terms of programming, are, are catered towards and for cishet white men. So we are doing the opposite of that. And we are supporting and catering to everybody but. Which doesn't mean, if you are a cishet white man and you have made a film in collaboration uh, with somebody who's queer, a person of color, um, you know, or your film involves that subject matter, you, you definitely can enter it. Um, we're not excluding those films, um, but we really are looking for works that are made by filmmakers from marginalized communities and marginalized identities. Awesome. Perfect. So if you are in the Milwaukee area, once all that information is announced about um, location and dates, Make sure you come on out. I'll be buying a ticket and we'll be there supporting the film festival. And then if you are a filmmaker that falls within the underrepresented voices of uh, film and video, make sure you are submitting to this film festival. You will not regret it. All right. This has been a long show. Anything else you guys want to say? No. I don't think so. I think I've reached the point of delirium. I've had an amazing time. Thank yeah, you. this has been a fun Thank episode. We you. talked about dicks so much on this show. <laughs> Thank you for having me on and listening to uh, No Context. What was it? Cock Context? Cock Context. Cock Context. Context and uh, Cock Tents. New Bro Show. Me go on and on about yeah. Carl McLaughlin's bum. Um, Both important. Well, I have to, and that scene was funny too, just because like it wasn't just bum. You got to see a little bit of a flop in that scene too. Oh yeah. And I was like, oh, man, it flopped. And she goes, it did. It's like, yeah, let's rewind it. And we rewound <laughs> it and rewatched it. Yes, yes. Many of the VHS tape has been uh, <laughs> worn yeah. out. That's, that's the scene that scrambled the most. <laughs> right. Hilarious. That's why VHS is a time capsule because you can always see where people was rewinding the most. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both for joining. And uh, everyone listening, you know where to find the show by now. I'm not even going to go over it all. Thank you very much. And you all have a good night. Yay. I told you that was going to be a great episode. And I didn't lie. Josephine and Amber Rose, while they weren't in complete agreement about their feelings on Blue Velvet, I think the re the way that they viewed this film and all the queer themes is incredible plus how you know how often do you get to just talk about kyle mclaughlin's butt for like five minutes that was that's great 
But as I promised, um, before we wrap this show up, I am going to do my new segment. It came from Severin. So as I said very recently, the show has partnered with Severin Films. And um, they recently have. Uh, I recently was able to talk about um, the Eurocult collection of Christopher Lee. If you check out my TikTok, which I'm just shameless, uh, shameless picture show on TikTok, I do a deep dive of this collection where I break it down and show you everything that's inside of it. But I wanted to save my reviews for these a little bit more long form for the podcast itself. Um, and uh, I believe at the time of this recording, if you go down to Video Nerd in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, you can pick up a copy of this, I believe. Uh, that was something I was talking to the guys at Video Nerd about, and they should be having copies of uh, the Euro Cult of Christopher Lee on hand. And that's Video Nerd at 1625 East Irving Place. Um, so um, if they don't have if they don't have the Euro Cult set up yet, I know they will have it soon. Um, so please check them out and just check them out for other cool stuff. They have a lot of boutique labels. I believe they work with, um, they obviously work with Severin. I believe they work with Vintner Syndrome and some other cool stuff. So if they can probably get it for you and you should be checking that out. So, sorry, I just opened the case for some reason. So today I'm going to be talking about, as I said, Crypt of the Vampire. It's gone by a couple of different names. I believe it was also known as Terror in the Crypt. Um, but it is an Italian, uh, Spanish horror film. Um, I'll read the back of the box. So DVD drive-in. So I'm going to start with the review. It says truly haunting, uh, brimming with atmosphere and shot in authentic Gothic ruins. It's a must for anyone who enjoys vintage horror starring Christopher Lee. And that was a review by DVD drive-in. And this is the first official U.S. Blu-ray release now scanned from a fine grain 35 millimeter master. Uh, in a lavish gothic shocker inspired by Sheridan Lefanu's immortal novella Carmilla, Christopher Lee delivers a rare hero turn as nobleman Count Karnstein, whose foreboding castle teems with ancestral curses, unnatural desires, philosophical hunchbacks, and grisly acts of vengeance. Adriana Ambessi from Fangs of the Living Dead co-stars in this 1964 Spanish-Italian co-production, also known as Terror in the Crypt and Crypt of Horror, directed by, direct, I'm going to mispronounce this name, directed by Camilo Mastosinque, uh, an angel for Satan, as and he went by the name um, Thomas Miller and Robert Spafford from a screenplay by Ernesto Gastaldi, who uh, wrote All the Colors of the Dark, as Julian Barry and Tonino Valeri, for, uh, who made the movie My Name is Nobody, as Robert Bower, now featuring a 2K scan from a fine grain 35mm print. Um, DVD Talk also says a fantastic looking movie. It's hard not to be impressed by the visuals and imagery. Lee casts against type, as has charm and charisma up. Plenty. Look deeply into these eyes if you dare. Is this man a victim, trapped within the ancient walls of the castle of Karnstein by the workings of a terrible curse? Or is he the arch-criminal himself? What strange ceremonies take place in the darkest dungeons of the castle? Rites of black magic, dominated by the dread symbol of the five-pointed star, which heralds the arrival of death. He claims yet another victim, this victim from beyond the tomb, she runs from him in desperation, but she knows that there is no escape. A student of ancient manuscripts finds a clue to the identity of the murderer, but the inhabitants of the castle are to undergo many more nights of terror before he succeeds in revealing the blood-chilling secret of the terror in the crypt. Ah! Ah! 
are in the crypt. When I was in London recently, they informed me that you were the best person to satisfy my curiosity on a certain matter. I am at your disposition. Go on, sir. A matter I should add of life and death. Then why don't we get married? You could be my daughter. All right, then adopt me. I don't find that amusing. It's because I want to become a Karnstein in any way I can. Why? Oh, because it would be nice to have a great fancy K embroidered on my robe. Is that the only reason? Christopher Lee, star of some of the most terrifying horror films ever made, gives his greatest performance as the master of Constein Castle. If you are able to withstand scenes of nightmarish horror, you will find yourself a fascinated witness as a sadistic murderer relentlessly pursues his terrible revenge. Who is the ruthless killer? How does one escape a lust for vengeance that reaches down through the centuries from beyond the tomb? Terror in the Crypt, a film of breathtaking suspense and blood-chilling horror. Ah! Ah! Laura! Thomas Miller, starring Christopher Lee, with Audrey Amber, Ursula Davis, Jose Campos, Vera Valmont, and Naila Conju. Italian films were always really interesting, or Italian-Spanish uh, horror films, because they would often give the the filmmakers American-sounding names, because people didn't want to go see foreign films. So this is the first one I pulled out, um, because, you know, title Crypt of the Vampire, you're thinking vampires, you're thinking Christopher Lee, it is officially October, and that just felt like the right way to go. So, with this film, I will admit and I'm always try to be, I always try to be very honest with my reviews. I just because something is supposed to be considered a classic does not mean I'm going to love it and just because something is considered shit does not mean I'm not going to find something I enjoy out of it. I'm also at times painfully um honest. So we live in a world where there's a lot of things going on. Things are very fast, very fast paced. Um, and whether or not you believe in it or not, um, neurodivergence is a thing. ADD, uh, ADHD, it is all a thing. 
And while I do my very best as a lover of cinema to try to avoid any distraction, sometimes as a cinema lover, I am not always in the right headspace for particular films. And I'm giving this um, introduction because when I sat down to watch Crypt of the Vampire, I think this was one of those situations where I just truly was not in the right state of mind to watch this film. And I mentioned that because I'm actually quite a big fan of, of uh, moody, gothic pieces. I'm a sucker for movies about witchcraft. I'm a sucker for movies about vampires. Uh, this movie does have incredible production design, incredible uh, wardrobe. Um, everyone looks amazing. Uh, men and women um there's uh i love these euro gothic stories you know satanic rituals it's got you know creepy cold castle corridors um all these things all this atmosphere these fog drenched sets i love all of that i'm also really into um especially gothic horror films that have lgbtqia plus themes to them and i know the carmela stories usually do um so like um movies like the vampire lovers are is a movie that i absolutely love hammer really was great with movies like this or something like uh, daughters of darkness that you know movies like that are my jam so when i was watching um crypt of the vampire and, you know, it's at a brisk 85 minutes, so it's really not even that long. Just something wasn't quite connecting with me. So I mentioned um, um, that this film is, uh, as it says, has Christopher Lee, because it's part of the Euro Cult Christopher Lee collection. And he plays Count Karnstein, who is a uh, wealthy and reclusive count um who is getting more and more worried that there's a curse from one of his ancestors that's going to affect his daughter laura and he wants to look into this so he he calls for a researcher named i think his name is klaus um who has to like dig through all the family records all the books and all this stuff to find out if there's any truth to this and while all this is happening laura is uh befriending this other woman i don't remember the name of and they grow closer and closer um, and, uh, we start to find out that this new woman is involved with this curse. Um, what I think wasn't working for me in this film, besides the fact that I just unfortunately was not in the right headspace for it, is Christopher Wee plays Count, uh, Karnstein. And I should also mention, um, a film that I mentioned earlier, The Vampire Lovers, is also within the same world of, um, it's apparently a, a trilogy, the Karnstein Trilogy, um, along with, um, because um, Karnstein, is, Karnstein is a character in that film as well, uh, which is also, I think, a loose adaptation of the Carmela story, so it's all kind of within a same the same world. I don't think they're necessarily sequels of each other or anything like that, but The Vampire Lovers is a set kind of, I guess, in the same world as um, Crypt of the Vampire. I need to do a little more digging on that, but because uh, um, 
The Vampire Lovers was made by Hammer, and this movie was not, but still, it's it's something worth mentioning. Um, I just, I really like The Vampire Lovers, I'm sorry. What I think wasn't working for me on this film is I went into this thinking that this was a Christopher Lee vehicle. This was a movie that was going to have a lot of Christopher Lee, and Christopher Lee was in this. Don't get me wrong, and he's quite good in this movie. Um, it's great to see him, Christopher Lee, when he is focused and really into the part. Adriana um, Ambessi, who plays Laura Kynstein, she's great in this film as well. So it's Ursula Davis who plays the other woman. But I think really where my issues come from is Christopher Lee is in the beginning of this film, and then he just kind of disappears for a while until he, he until near the end. Um, and Jose Campos, who plays uh, the character of Klaus, he kind of takes over as the lead character. And there's nothing wrong with Jose Campos. I actually think he kind of reminds you a little of Sylvester Stallone. Um, but I went in looking for a creepy gothic Christopher Lee movie, and Christopher Lee kind of bookended this movie. And it was more so a story about uh, Jose Campos' character, Klaus, Um discovering the true story behind the Karnstein curse. So I think some of this has to do with expectations versus reality. Um, once again, that is a myth problem. You know, I went in with the perspective on a movie and I had a certain idea of what I wanted this movie to be instead of trying to instead of trying to appreciate what the movie is. And sometimes as a film critic or film culturist as I like to call myself that will happen. You go in with a you try to go in with as blank of a slate as possible and try to judge a movie based on what it is not what you want it to be. But we're human. You know, I wanted a, a creepy Christopher Lee movie, and I got a creepy gothic film that had Christopher Lee, but it wasn't. It didn't feel like a Christopher Lee movie to me. Um, I feel like this is a movie that, upon rewatch, I might enjoy quite a bit more. Um, but currently in Letterboxd, I gave it two and a half stars. I couldn't doubt that the film was well made. It really was. It just wasn't what I wanted it to be. So, once again, that is a me problem not necessarily a problem for the movie. So Crypt of the Vampire was shot by um, cinematographer Julio Hortas, who um, made a lot of uh, Italian and Spanish horror films. So obviously he did Crypt of the Vampire. He did um, Light the Fuse, Sartana is Coming. So he did a couple of the Sartana films, lots of spaghetti westerns. Um, he did Ringo, The Mark of Vengeance, Lone and Angry Man. Um, he did um, Sword of Zorro, so a lot of Italian um, westerns. Um, and this movie was shot in, uh, from what it looked, it, from what I've been able to find online, it was shot in the aspect ratio of one point eight five to one, and I believe that's how it was presented on this disc. It looked like one point eight five to one to me. It was shot using spherical lenses on thirty five millimeter film. Um, the film, I do have to say, looked quite good. Um, 
So according to the box, they, it was a 2K scan from a 35 millimeter fine grain master print, which when a fine when you have a fine grain print, obviously you're st you still have grain, but it's not too chunky. It's it's not going to be too distracting. I also appreciate that it looks like the print that they used carried its original Italian titles, which is kind of fun. Um, I thought it actually looked pretty good. Um, I thought there was a lot of uh, great clarity despite the grain like I said it was fine grain so it wasn't too wasn't too bad um what if i had noticed any real issue in the darker scenes there was mild streaking meaning like those light streaks um along the um the darker scenes but that looked like it was an issue with the print not necessarily anything to, to do with the way that severin transferred it uh there was some, definitely a little bit of damage throughout the print but it looked really really good um it was a really nice looking presentation like i said um nice uh contrast on it good black levels i don't didn't notice any uh egregious black crush if there was any throughout uh, in terms of audio, there is both an English and Italian 2.0 mono track. Um, according to my notes, I believe they are both DTS HD master um, audio. Um, I didn't. I guess I can't confirm that with the Italian. I did not actually sample the Italian, um, but the English track actually sounds quite good. Um, I feel like it was a little muffled near the beginning at times, um, but. Once again, it is a product of its time. It is dubbed, um, but all pretty much all Italian and Spanish films were dubbed at this time. Um, so uh, I've actually thought it sounded quite good despite all the issues it might have had in its age. So yeah, uh, in terms of on this specific disc, the only special feature is a trailer. But like I said, for me, I, I had a hard time getting into Crypt of the Vampire. But that's not to say I won't get into it further later on. Hell, I love The Vampire Lovers. The first time I saw it, I was a little on the fence about it, but I love it now. So if anything, this is going to be me saying, sometimes you just got to give things a rewatch. Give things a try. Um, just because you don't love it the first time does not mean you might not gravitate towards it the second. So the, my first review for the Euro Cult of Christopher Lee collection is Crypt of the Vampire. I gave it two and a half stars on Letterboxd. I do want to rewatch it. Uh, but if you like this movie, let me know, let me know. I'm sure I'm missing something. Um, but I really think it was just, I wasn't in the right mindset for it, but I truly love Christopher Lee. I love Gothic vampire films. So I definitely think down the line, this will be my bag, but, um, first watch wasn't for me, but we'll give it a shot again down the road. And before I wrap up, I do want to first thank the regional warrior Matt Harding for believing in the Shameless Picture Show and helping this new segment come together. Um, also, <clears throat> please be sure to follow Severin Films on all forms of social media, from Instagram, Facebook, and so on. And if you are in the uh, Midwest area, make sure you are paying attention to Severin's event pages. So, um, they do have some events coming up on Friday, October 28th at 3 p.m. to about midnight. They will be at the Wheaton Haunted Flea Market in Wheaton, Illinois. That's 2015 Manchester Road in Wheaton, Illinois. Severin will be there. And if you're in my area of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 
make sure you are going to the Halloween Takeover, where they're showing Eyes of Fire and Dark Waters. That is at the famous X-Ray Arcade in on South Packard Avenue in Cudahy, Wisconsin. Um, Severn will be there. Catacombs Media will be there. Video Vomit will be there. Video Nerd will be there. Um, there's going to be horror trivia, prizes. There's no cover charge. And there's going to be a John Carpenter cover set by Brotherhood of Sleep. There will also be food and drink specials, trick-or-treat candy, and a bunch of other cool things. That's the Halloween Takeover um, at the world-famous X-Ray Arcade on in South Packard Avenue in Cudahy, Wisconsin. Uh, they'll be showing Eyes of Fire and Dark Water. Um, unfortunately, I will be there. I won't be there because I will be shooting a new teaser trailer for a project that I've got coming up. But you should all be there and show Severin how much you guys love them. Uh, so that's all I got for you guys. Thank you very much. I wanted to make sure I mentioned this. Have a good week. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers. Today's episode was edited by Michael Byers. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The Shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Byers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.